Good morning, y'all. If you guys don't know me, my name's Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. If I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, if you're newer or newer, or if we've just never met before, come and find me after service. Say hi to me. I would love to meet you, and I promise you I'm more awkward than you are. So it will be awkward, but it'll be all right. Now, if you were here with us last week, we're continuing on in this in-between series, and last week we had a pretty long passage, but this week we're opening up an even longer passage. Now, be aware of this before we even get into it. I'm not going to be able to address everything that we read this morning. There's going to be far too much for me to unpack all of it, and that's okay. You don't need another human being, let alone me, to tell you what every single line of this book means. And here at South Point, our goal isn't simply for knowledge anyway. It's the pursuit of a relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to read this entire passage. And I'm going to speak into some of it, but I'm not going to get to all of it. And so we always emphasize that even if you miss what we say up here preaching, please pay attention and focus as we read the words of Scripture because they're way more important than anything we could say about it anyway. And even more so this morning because there's only going to be commentary on a few small portions. And I actually encourage you this week to go back into this passage and read it over the course of the week. There's so much in it, um, and I really think that that will be beneficial for you. So we're going to be still in 1 Peter. We're going to be starting in chapter 3 and verse 8. And the Apostle Peter, if you haven't been with us, the entire purpose of this letter is he's writing to these exiled Christians, and he's painting them a picture on how to best live in a world that's hostile towards them because of what they believe how to live with peace and hope and joy in that meantime while they wait for Jesus to come back. And so we're actually approaching the end of Peter's letter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 again, starting at verse 8. And it says this, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also, also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, 
Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, as I said, there's a lot in these passages. There's a lot. But I want to boil it down this morning to something very simple, a very manageable and simple question, and then we'll go back into the text and unpack it a little bit. But here's the very easy and manageable question that I want to begin with, and that question is, what is the meaning of life? Easy, right? I mean, you guys do know the meaning of life, right? I mean, I thought everyone knew. Teddy knows. Strangely, some people are still debating this question, but if I can be honest with you guys, I think that I've kind of figured it out, not to pat myself on the back. Now, I haven't mastered it, per se, but I have come to this realization that the moments in my life when I feel the most fulfilled are the moments when I do this, what we're going to talk about, as well as I can. And this may feel like a super easy, like super 90s Sunday school answer, but Jesus said that his burden is easy, and he also said that you should approach the kingdom of God like a child. And so for me, for me, the meaning of life is to know God, be with God, and glorify God. The meaning of life is to know God, be with God, and glorify God. Now, you can fight me on this all you want, but you're never going to change my mind. I've been around for over three decades now, longer than some, shorter than others, but in my three decades, I've been all over the world with the Navy. 
I've dabbled in just about every earthly pursuit someone can chase. I've spent money and time and energy on so many different things, but the moments when I have been the most fulfilled and lived with the most peace and joy are the moments in my life when I felt that I truly know God. And in the moments when I have been with God in profound and intimate ways and when I have lived to glorify God, that's when I've been the most fulfilled. And so for me, that is the meaning of life. And reading through this passage, I kind of think Peter feels the same way. I mean, look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I really love how that's worded. Make a defense for the hope you have. Make a defense. As if the world's going to come up to you with like a flashlight and interrogate you. Or like a lawyer is going to be de- doing a deposition on you and finally come to his, his final point and say, listen, it appears you have hope. You have hope. Now that doesn't make sense in the world that we live in. And so because you have hope, need you to defend yourself. Why do you have hope? Well, if they asked me, according to my meaning of life, I have hope because I know God. I have hope because I know God. Now, for hope to exist, there has to be struggle. I mean, that's when hope is most valuable. And in the midst of really deep and dark struggle, having hope because you know God is infinitely valuable. And if I'm being honest with you guys, I really don't know how anyone could have hope without God. I mean, we're on this little rock orbiting this giant ball of fire at, at 67,000 miles per hour. That ball of fire in the rest of our solar system is hurtling through the galaxy at around 434,000 miles an hour. And our galaxy is hurtling through the universe at 1.3 million miles an hour. I mean, if there's no God, your suffering has no meaning. There's no redemption or meaning to anything. And if that's what someone believes, that there's no God, what do you hold on to when you lose someone you love or you get diagnosed with something terrifying? Why do I have hope? When we struggle to make financial ends meet, I have hope because I know a God who provides everything that I need. I know that I'll be taken care of. Why do I have hope if my child gets sick? I have hope because I know a God who loves them even more than I love them and will take care of them. And the crazy thing that so many non-believers don't seem to understand is that I don't just throw these phrases around. God actually shows up in my life. I've experienced peace when it didn't make sense. I've experienced and witnessed miraculous healing. I've seen God go into the darkest places and pull out people I love even when I wasn't even really sure I believed they could be saved. And I watched him bring them to life as we just sang about. I mean, I've had God sit with me in the darkest corners and my most broken moments. I've had God carry me until I could spiritually walk again. And this is how we're called to speak about God. Peter says, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. It seems like we've lost our ability to do this. 
People come after our beliefs and we gear up to fight. Do you know you don't have to fight? Do you really believe? Has God shown up for you? Do you know him? You can just talk about that. Did you know you don't even have to point out all of their sins and mistakes? You don't have to call them out on that. You don't have to explain all the ways in which they're committing spiritual suicide. All you have to do is show them that you have hope and be willing to tell them why you have hope. And if you live with hope, there's nothing for them to argue with you about. You have hope because you know God. And the reason you know God is because Jesus built a bridge for you to get to him. And for that reason, they can know God too. But I just got to say this. You should just get used to people not accepting or receiving what you believe. Just get used to it. Don't get offended. Don't get angry. It doesn't help. Certainly doesn't make you look more convincing. If anything, it just makes us look insecure in our beliefs when we spiral and argue and freak out whenever someone pushes back against us. Let them push. Do you know God? Then have hope. And this passage says if you live with this confidence and answer with gentleness and respect, then when people call you a bigoted, hateful, judgmental, hypocritical, religious nut job, that anyone with any kind of sense, even non-believers, will say, well, I haven't actually seen that from them. They just seem to have hope in something. But you see, if you act like a bigoted, hateful, judgmental, hypocritical, religious nut job, no one is going to hear anything coming out of your mouth. People seem to start taking pride in alienating people in Jesus' name. That's not what we're called to do. Alienating people because you're overly aggressive and judgmental, that doesn't make you a hero for Jesus. That makes you an obstacle for people who are trying to get to Jesus. Live in hope. I promise you that it's better. You know God. That's step one of the meaning of life. What's next? Be with God. Be with God. The beginning of chapter four says this. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of this life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, that's non-believers, want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, they come after you, they attack you, they badger you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What's Peter saying as it pertains to being with God in this passage? Well, it's a really hard truth, and it's one that I think a lot of believers learn the hard way, and it's that you can't be with the world and with God. You can't be with the world and with God. It's a hard lesson to learn, man. It's one that I think a lot of Christians, including myself, continually struggle with. Your heart can't be fully for two things at once. You can't be both with the world and with God, and maybe you're thinking, well, that's not really true. I pull it off, all right. But did you know in 1 John, it says this, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father 
is not in him. You see, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, you are saved by the grace of God because of your faith in Jesus. Know that. Salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it. It's a gift that you receive by accepting this invitation of Jesus to commit your life to him, an invitation that he paid for with his life. But you see, because of this, because we're saved by grace, because we can't earn salvation, I think too many Christians fool themselves into thinking that this means that sin is no longer dangerous to them. But oh yes, it is. If you allow it to, Sin will rob you of every good thing God wants you to experience in this life. There's a reason why there's a continual call to obedience and holiness in the entire New Testament by both Jesus and the people he appointed to start his church. Obedience matters. Discipline does matter. Because you see, the world's approach to life is so extremely toxic. This satisfy yourself Go sow your wild oats. Live in excess. Live in rebellion. Live your truth. This approach to life ends in so much shame and insecurity and loneliness. Do you see how insecure and lonely the entire world is? I've said it before, and I'll say it again now. God's law of life, his commandments, they're not there to restrict you or imprison you. They're meant to help you experience freedom and peace in this life. Following Jesus isn't putting chains on, it's taking chains off. And we miss that. That flies over our head because a lot of us don't hear anything except, I'm not allowed to. Not allowed. I'll give you an example. John says, if you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. He's he's saying there's no way that you truly love God if you think that committing to him means you're losing out on something. There's no way that you really know God if you think that committing your life to him means you're missing out on something. Imagine this scenario, and I'm certain this has probably happened multiple times in real life, but I'm posing it as a hypothetical. Imagine you find the love of your life, and they're amazing. They're they're perfect for you. They make you happy. They challenge you, and they encourage you, and they say they love you with everything they have. But then when talks of marriage and commitment come up, they say they don't know if they're ready to commit to you because they haven't lived enough life yet. Now what they mean when they say that is they haven't slept with enough people and they haven't pursued enough of their own dreams and they haven't done enough of the things that they want to do. And if they marry you, that will prevent them from doing those things. The underlying thing they're saying to you is, When it comes to you and all these other things, I'm not quite convinced yet that you're better. This is exactly what we do with God. And Peter and John both say that God sees right through that. We say that we're obsessed with God, but we refuse to commit to him. We say we want to know God more, but then we do a five-minute devotional before spending five hours on social media. I mean, check the screen time on your phone. What do you really love? And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. I'm saying this to let you know that if you really want to be with God, if you want to experience the second piece of the meaning of life, you're going to have to fight against that worldly part of yourself that only wants to do what you want to do. Do you know why it's so hard to pick your Bible up and read it? Do you know why you want to read it, but you also don't want to read it? 
Because your flesh, your body, knows that it gets weaker with every word you read from this book. And your spirit knows that you get stronger with every word you read in this book. And so they're fighting against each other. Anyone in here want to read the Bible but also don't want to read the Bible? It's a weird phenomenon, right? There's two entities fighting inside of you, your body and your spirit. And so every time you go to pick up this book, your body, meaning your brain and your emotions, is saying, don't read that. That's boring. That's a waste of time. You're not going to get anything from that. Go do something else. But your spirit knows that you need it because you're dying of thirst. You see, the time that you spend with God will strengthen your soul and it will weaken your flesh. But the time you spend with the world will weaken your soul and it will strengthen your flesh. And at some point, we have to decide who we're going to give our affection to. Do we want to be with the world or do we want to be with God? And how long are we going to pretend that sitting on the fence is okay before we just admit that the fence also belongs to the world? It's not enough just to know God. The devil knows God. The devil knows God. I I don't want to know God the way the devil knows God. I want to know God in a way that brings me life. And that requires me not only knowing him, but being with him. That's the second piece of the meaning of life. First to know God, then to be with God, and then the third is to glorify God. Peter says in chapter 4, verse 10, he puts it like this. He says, as each has received a gift, as each, each and every one of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now there's a lot in this passage, but let me just put it to you like this. Glorifying God does not happen on accident. Glorifying God does not happen on accident. If you're not focusing on God, if you're not chasing after him, if you are not trying to set your heart and your mind on him, you're not going to accidentally glorify him. Now, we've created a church culture in America where the primary people who share the gospel of Jesus are preachers and teachers. And we created a church culture in America where the primary time that the gospel of Jesus is shared is on Sunday morning. We've also created a church culture where the primary place that we share the gospel of Jesus is in a building like this. You see, we've taken the Christian faith, which is not designed to function like other world religions, and we have made it look exactly like every other world religion. Now, as a pastor, this terrifies me because I know me, and I know pastors. And pastors are just ordinary, messed up people just like everyone else. They don't just say that. They really are. And the ones who don't say that, they are. (laughs) Trust me, I know them. And if the future of the church in America is being left in the hands of pastors, then the future of the church in America is in trouble. Peter says it here and Paul says it elsewhere. There is a gift inside of you, inside each and every one of you, man, something unique and specific and beautiful to you. 
something that I can't tap into and Jamie can't tap into and utilize. And if you don't take the call on your life to glorify God seriously, that gift is going to waste away along with the impact it could have made. We read the book of Acts last year, if you were with us. And in the book of Acts, we watched this man named Paul. Paul accepted this invitation from Jesus to go and share his message with the world. The same invitation that's been extended to each and every one of us in this room. Now, Paul, this guy was wild, man. He was relentless. There was nothing more important to Paul than sharing the death and resurrection of Jesus with the world around him. And in Acts chapter 19, if you remember, or maybe you haven't read it, but in Acts chapter 19, there are these seven men. There are these Jewish exorcists. And these Jewish exorcists, they find themselves face-to-face with this demon-possessed man, and they command the demon to come out in Jesus' name. And this is how the Bible says the demons respond to them. It says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? you? You see, my prayer for every single person in this church body is that the demons and spirits of darkness would recognize you because you've been wreaking havoc on their plans in your family and in your workplace and in your neighborhood. My prayer for you is that when you take a new job, these spiritual forces, these spiritual dark forces will fear for the hold they have over that workplace now that you're there with the message of Jesus. My prayer for you is that when you stumble into a new friend group, these spiritual dark forces will be terrified that they're about to lose their grip over that friend group because you're there with the message of Jesus. My prayer for you, man, is that when you move into a neighborhood, a new, new, when you move into a new neighborhood, that these demons will hang their head and defeat on your move-in day because they know that your neighborhood is now spoken for in the name of Jesus Christ. What I'm terrified of What I'm terrified of is not evil spirits tempting this church or trying to attack us or divide us. I'm not afraid of that. What I'm afraid of is that South Point Church would be mentioned to the enemy and the response would be, who's that? Never heard of them. They don't pose any threat to us. Actually, you know what? They must be one of those churches who only come in on Sundays and sing songs and get talked to for a little while and that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, don't even worry about them. You see, the demons knew Paul. Paul was a problem. Are you a problem? Did you know that Christianity is not what happens within these four walls on Sunday morning? This this is not Christianity. And so if this is all it is for you, you might have to stop calling yourself a Christian. You see, Christianity is not what we're doing right now. What we're doing right now is either anchoring or re-anchoring ourselves to Jesus so we can go out there and do Christianity. Christianity is not what you do in here. Christianity is what you do when you walk out of this place. Christianity is how you love and serve and minister to your family and how you invite God into your day-to-day, into your home and your workplace and your classrooms and your friend groups and everywhere that you occupy. Christianity is moving from defense to offense. Man, you used to get hammered by spiritual dark forces. Do you remember you used to be dead? 
used to be dead. No hope, no peace, no joy, no meaning, no life. There used to be nothing within yourself. You used to be just like the rest of the world, and when things would happen, you used to have to just accept it and wait for the storm to pass. Or did you forget that that's not your life anymore? You're on offense now. You're supposed to be the dangerous one. Not because of who you are, certainly not because of who you are, but because of what you carry around inside of you. It's interesting that Peter is the one who wrote this letter towards the end of his life because Jesus said this to Peter when he was just a young man. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We read this, and we think that the enemy attacks like time and time again, and our faith in Jesus keeps us secure. But let me just ask you something. When was the last time you ever saw a gate attack? When was the last time you ever saw a gate attack? Gates don't attack. Gates defend. Hell is on defense. So what do you suppose the gates of hell are trying to defend against? Trying to defend against the people the demons recognize by name. Who carry around the gospel of Jesus Christ like it's the best thing that ever happened to humanity. They're supposed to be trying to defend themselves against you and losing that fight. Did you know that? So why do so many Christians feel like they're always on defense? Why does it only feel like you're getting attacked all the time? Well, you see, if we just do what every other religion does in here, and then we go live like every other person lives out there, then I don't know why we're surprised when we feel as bad as everyone else feels. We have to live differently. And I, I want my life to have meaning. I want your life to have meaning. That's why we offer all these classes and things on how to pray and how to read your Bible and how to make God the foundation of your marriage and how to raise your children to know him so you can take your faith outside of this building. That's why we have home groups and women's ministries and men's ministries and student ministries and kids' ministries so you can get connected to other people who want to have a relationship with Jesus and faith outside of this place. That's why we have ways to serve both here and out in our community so we can begin to wage war on the powers of spiritual darkness in our community. To attack the gates of hell with the good news of Jesus Christ, we do everything that we do here so anyone in this place can discover the meaning of life so you can know God, be with God, and glorify God. Because there's nothing better in the universe, man. There's nothing better. And so with all these opportunities and with this standing invitation from Jesus that it's not going to be around forever. This invitation is going to go away someday. But it's still standing right now. The question then becomes how badly do you want your life to have meaning? And are we willing to do what it takes to know God, be with God, and glorify God to experience those things? Let's pray. Lord, I know that I fall short. All the time. I know that I've tried to walk the line, still find myself trying to walk the line between the world and you. Even though I know the world kills me, even though I know the world makes my spirit weak. God, I know that this community, more than we need anything else, we need a fresh hunger and desire and thirst for you, God. 
I pray that you give it to us. I pray that you allow us to recognize the fraudulence and fakeness and frivolity of the world that we live in, that it doesn't offer anything sustainable or meaningful, that all it delivers is lies. But when we turn to you, Lord, you give us everything that we need and we can know you, intimately know you in a way that transforms us from the inside out and we can live with hope, God. And we can be with you. We don't have to sit in the mess of the world. We can find moments of time where we sit with you and experience your presence and have your joy and peace and grace wash over us, God. We can glorify you. We can go into our neighborhoods and our families, our workplaces, wherever it is that we dwell, we can walk into those places confidently with hope and joy and peace and the message of Jesus Christ and engage people and love them and share this with them in such a way that it transforms these landscapes. Your kingdom can take over here as it is everywhere else in the world, God. Make us obedient to that. Make us in awe of you. Blow us away and then give us the strength and wisdom and courage to open our mouths and share the joy of the Lord with people. Jesus, we love you. We can't do this without you. We don't want to do it without you. We need all of this to be from an overflowing of the love and peace and grace that we experience from you that we can share that with those around us. We trust that you'll give that to us if we just set our hearts on you. Lord, we love you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.